You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to dote upon. Hello, and welcome to the Christian Feminist Podcast, episode 162, The Women of Sherlock Holmes. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me tonight are Laurie Norris and Alexis Neal. Hi, friends. Hey. So we're going to go around the horn and introduce ourselves. For anybody who's new to the podcast, we're going to start with Laurie. Hi, I am Laurie Norris, and I am in Athens, where I work at the University of Georgia, pretend to work on a dissertation, but mostly just fantasize about my garden. It's that time of year, right? Um, It's that time of year all the time. (laughs) Alexis, how about you? I am Alexis Neal. I live in Southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, the political podcast of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Um, And I spend some of my time as an elected official in our local community, but a lot of my time, uh, bulk of my time probably is spent uh, at home with the boys uh, and homeschooling my oldest. Um, So that's... I, I have occasionally taught as an adjunct. I am trained as a lawyer, but really these days, um, I'm, you know, second grade homeschooling is is where my brain is at. You have tons of hats, friend, and I, I've always admired you for all the different things that you juggle and have juggled. Um, I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in Leeds, Alabama. As of July, um, I live here with David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our four children. And I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Uh, I still am, have been for years because uh, when we moved here, I was able to continue teaching online. So that's my kind of part-time gig. But like Alexis, I spend most of my time with all these children and uh, getting them to and from school and all all manner of things like that. So um, tonight we are going to be talking about two particular stories. We're not going to try to cover all the women of Sherlock Holmes listeners because it would just be an entire season of of episodes. Um, We picked two particular stories that feature uh, female characters that are very interesting and and about which much can be said and much has been said. Um, The two stories we're covering tonight are The Speckled Band, The Adventure of the Speckled Band, and also A Scandal in Bohemia. And uh, we are going to talk about these stories in a way, an order that doesn't, might not feel intuitive because Scandal of Bohemia was actually published first, but we're going to talk about the Speckled Band first, mainly because um, Irene Adler, the main female character in A Scandal in Bohemia, gives such fertile ground for discussion that I feel like we're probably going to focus more on that story than the other. So we're going to save it for the end. Um, but before we talk through these stories in depth, we wanted to like we often do on this podcast, go personal just for a minute and talk about when we first encountered these particular stories and or adaptations of these stories that we found interesting. Um, So why don't we start with Alexis? Sure. Um, I honestly don't remember when I first read Sherlock Holmes because I don't ever remember not having read Sherlock Holmes, all I'm sure 
I wasn't super, super young, but um, they're they're pretty intertwined with the memories back as far as they go. And I also don't know which came first for me, watching the adaptations uh, or reading the stories. I grew up watching Jeremy Brett on the, um, the BBC uh, adaptations, although I think it might actually be Canadian television. But uh, but Jeremy Brett is the, the Sherlock Holmes I grew up with and, and the Sherlock Holmes I pictured for a very, very long time. I'm still very partial to his portrayal. I think he has a lot of the look of Sherlock Holmes down. Um, and I was always tickled pink to know as I discovered later that that actor had also played Freddie Einsford Hill in um, my fair lady, which is a, just a character who is a completely different direction than Sherlock Holmes, um, which I was always tickled by. But anyway, grew up with Jeremy Brett, read the stories, read the stories over and over and over again. I don't know how many times over the years. And then more recently, I do really enjoy Benedict Cumberbatch's portrayal of Holmes and um, possibly even more so um, the portrayal of Watson um, in that Sherlock series, because Watson is a little bit more fleshed out there, um, and and not just a, basically a cardboard cutout um, standing around for for Holmes to talk to. So those are the adaptations that I I have loved the most. Um, but yeah, Sherlock Holmes is as far back as I go. I, I remember reading him. How about you guys? I would say I'm the uh, I'm sorry. Please don't hate me. The exact opposite because uh, these are the. Oh. I feel I feel gross saying this, but this is literally the first time I've ever read Conan Doyle ever. Wow, that's kind of fun, though. I, I'm excited to see what you think if this is your first encounter. I love that. And yeah. I'm jealous of you that you get to read them for the first time because I can't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I signed up for this episode partially because I am so familiar with the adaptation, Basil Rathbone being my Sherlock Holmes, 1939, Hound of the Baskervilles. I, I can close my eyes and watch that movie in my head. Um, but I I realized I've never actually read any of the texts. And since this was going to be an episode not on adaptations, but on the actual stuff, I was like, you know what? I'm doing it. I love it so much. And I can't now I really can't wait to hear what you have to say. Um, I don't I, like Alexis. I can't remember the first time I read Sherlock Holmes. I'm sure I probably read some stories or some some uh, some things like that when I was a kid because I enjoyed mysteries. Um, and I know that when my husband and I first got together, that he had the collected stories um, in his apartment. And so I know I started reading more of them then. Um, and probably have watched more Sherlock Holmes with him um, since we got together than I ever did before that. We've watched almost all the Basil Rathbones. Um, Laurie, I love the Hound of the Baskervilles too. And actually um, in my, I, I built the online version of Comp 2 at HBU, which is writing about literature, but the novel, the only novel we read in that class is the Hound of the Baskervilles. <laughs> <laughs> and because I love that novel and um, and I always do encourage them to watch the film because it is so good, but also caution them about the changes between the novel and the film, because I definitely have ones that have only watched the movie and then tried to talk about the story like it's the right version, <laughs> which you can always that's always a dead giveaway. Um, and uh, and uh, I also love Jeremy Brett Alexis. I think he's my favorite. Um, I think that he has this sensation of coiled energy that I think is very appropriate and um and some of the and 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 a part of the reason i think i love jeremy brett too the most is that those those episodes and those stories especially the earlier ones that they did with jeremy brett they're so faithful to the stories that in a lot of ways it's like you're just watching 
the text from the page play out, which I really appreciate. So I think it makes him feel more real as Sherlock Holmes because it's so close to what's on the page. Um, I do have to throw in one, even though they're ridiculous in many ways, I do have to throw in uh, one kind of sought to the, uh, the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. That be only because I really appreciate that Watson <laughs> is the right age in those movies. That's that's okay. my, that's my favorite part because I think I saw the first one of those before I saw the um, the Cumberbatch one, which also has a younger Watson. But you know, after years watching the Jeremy Brett ones and watching the um, especially the Basil Rathbone. Um, Nigel Bruce ones, which I love, but um, when we first watched that Downey Jr. one, I was like, okay, he's actually in his 30s, like that, you know, and I appreciated that, that he was cast as the correct age. Um, those movies are stupid fun, and I won't apologize for liking them. They're not the real thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're not at all, but they're a lot of fun. Um, so that's, that's fair. You know, that's, that's like, uh, I, I would call those absolutely appropriation. They're not adaptation. Um, he has been appropriated and is being placed into a new guys. Um, I, and, and I will say that I really appreciate Jared Harris. If you're going to pick a Moriarty, you could definitely do worse than Jared Harris. Um, but he's good in pretty much everything. So, um, okay, let's go and um, we're going to move on and talk about these two stories. But before we do, I'm going to give just a little bit of publication histories just to kind of give some background on these two stories. So the first one, I'm going to talk about both stories, publication histories, and then we'll we'll take each story one by one. So the first one we're going to talk about is The Speckled Band. Um, and it was first published in The Strand Magazine uh, with illustrations by Sidney Paget, who famously illustrated a lot of the Doyle stories. First published in February 1892 in the UK. It came out one month later in the US edition of The Strand in the United States in March 1892. And then was um, in the collection, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, which was published in October 1892. Um, Doyle called it his best story. He thought that the Speckled Band was his best effort in terms of the short stories, which I think is really interesting. And um, the other one, Scandal in Bohemia, is notable because it's the very first short story, Sherlock Holmes short story, ever published. The third overall work, he had a couple of novels before this short story. Um, it was the first illustrated by Sidney Paget. Doyle ranked it as his fifth favorite um, of his 12 favorite Sherlock Holmes stories, of which there are 56, so he had a lot to choose from. It was first published June 25th, 1891, in the July issue of The Strand Magazine in the UK, and then a month later, a month or two later in the US in August 1891. And it's also in the 1892 collection, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. It is the very first story in that book because it was the very first one published. So that's just to give you an idea of, so these, these two stories were initially published about, only about a year apart and then were collected in the same edition um, in the beginning. So that's another good reason to talk about them together because they're coming from the same kind of era of his writing. Um, you know, there's there's some later stories. There's some things that feel very different. And um, I, I like these two as a pair because they were so close in time. Um, so we're going to move on to talking about the Speckled Band. Before we kind of just talk through some discussion and some questions, Laurie's going to summarize the plot for us. Listeners, just in case you're not familiar or if it's been a long time since you've read it. Thanks, Katie. So listeners, spoiler alert for a really, really old story. Um, this tale is a quietly sort of gothic um, spook story about uh, a young a young woman, well, not so young, but 
It's hard to say because she's she's been put upon. I think she's in her early 30s, if I can do some math right, who approaches Holmes at her wit's end, absolutely terrified, doesn't really know why she's so afraid, can't really point to reasons, and he just starts salivating at the excitement of, oh, I don't even know, and takes off on this journey to help this woman figure out what she's afraid of, why why something might actually be trying to kill her, and then clearly solving the problem. So Helen Stoner comes to Holmes and Watson with this terror in her bones and a story about her twin sister dying mysteriously two years prior, just before her twin sister was supposed to get married. They had been living in this ramshackle, hundreds of year old manor house with their stepfather, who was a real piece of work, got run out of India for being um, horrible to his servants. So if, if you can run an Englishman out of India in the Victorian era, you know you're a bad person. So the sisters are all they have in, in life, and their, their stepfather has cut them off from the world, and one of them manages to find uh, find love and find a man that she's going to marry and move away. But she dies after losing her, going a little bit crazy, getting super, super scared all the time and hearing noises, telling her sister she hears this low whistly sound. And then she's just she's just struck with fear. And then. The night she dies, which Helen Stoner recounts to Holmes, who is wrapped with attention, uh, she, the sister cries out, the speckled band, that makes no sense to anybody, and then she just collapses. So Holmes, who starts the story in just absolute glee over, I don't even know what this is, this is so fun, let's go do this, um, be, quickly becomes convinced that this woman is being horribly abused, Helen Stoner and her, her dead twin sister, and it becomes sort of an act of justice to save her from her awful stepfather, who is, like I said, spoiler, trying to kill his stepdaughters in order to steal their money, because they would only inherit his dead their dead mother, his dead wife's money, when they got married. So... He locked them away so they could never meet people, so they could never get married. But then when both of them finally found love individually, he, he starts messing with their heads. And he does it by way of snake. Um, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but he trains a cobra to uh, climb a rope with milk. I that part, I, I wasn't really sure why why the cobra was so cool with milk, but the evil stepfather, monster of a man, tries to kill his stepdaughters with a snake. Ta-da! No, I didn't know this until uh, David told me, because he has many things to say about the Speckle Band. I learned this week. Um, there is has been, over the years, intense debate about what this snake actually is. Um, they call it a swamp adder, I think, actually, but apparently it doesn't actually match. The description of it doesn't look like the swamp adder. And so if you go to the Wikipedia page, there's a list of all the different candidates of actual snakes that have been put forward for what this snake is. And some people think you just made up a snake. Um, <laughs> I didn't know any of that until this week. Um, so there's been debate. Um, so 
as Laurie mentioned, this is uh, this is decidedly gothic. This short story, which is appropriate because mystery fiction emerged from the gothic, um, notably in Edgar Allan Poe's short stories about Dupont, his fictional detective. Those are the first detective stories, but it came from the gothic. And so this story in some ways is a throwback because it's a throwback to the original genre that mystery fiction came from. So what aspects of the gothic did you guys notice in this story? I mean, there wasn't a giant uh, like rolling helmet or a priest who's just stalking them, but the, the poor scared young woman um, who's sort of at the mercy of a real beast of a man, the crumbling uh, house. It's all romanticism taken to its logical extreme. And I love that Doyle puts his Holmes. Holmes is, is a giant weirdo. And so he takes Holmes, who is the logical extreme of Victorian rationality, and slaps him down into the uber-romantic gothic and and just plays with it to see what happens and what happens is like sincerity and an honest emotional connection between the these exaggerated archetypes i, I that's i loved it what did you think alexis um yeah i mean i think i think it it certainly has the, those elements in it um i i like the way that the house is so the 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 stepfather has secrets but the house itself has secrets that the layout of the house that allows the stepfather to um to sort of execute his plan is that these three rooms are all in a row uh, on the same side of a hallway and he has built a you know event between his room and the next room so, you know, the the one sister's in that room and he can send the snake over and then he has to manufacture a reason for the other sister to be in that room so he can send the snake over later. But that, that the house itself is sort of a player in in the mystery. It is a ne it's necessary for the physical structure of the house uh, to be involved in in the crime um, that's going on. And I always think it's interesting when we see Holmes outside of his he's such a city uh, city creature. Um, he's you know running around and he's got the Baker Street Irregulars and he's you know switching out costumes and he's going to opium dens and pretending to be a servant and all these things that are harder to do in a remote location. Like you could pretend to be one person, but then you can't go back and pretend to be somebody else because there's not enough people um, for you to, to have that fly. You'd be recognized. So it's always a little bit a fish out of water for him when he's out in the country. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, that Laurie makes a really good point there about his temperament as well as his city inclinations um, being an odd fit, but ultimately a, a great fit for, for this story. Yeah, um, and I just a couple other things that you guys haven't already said that kind of add to the atmosphere is that you you have the creepy old house, you know, you have the um, the kind of that creepy atmosphere of the of the partially ruined house, but then you've also got scary gypsies who are allowed to hang out on the property and strange animals. Um, he has a baboon and a cheetah that are allowed to roam free around which the the baboon even though it's not the same the baboon always makes me think of like the murders in the room morgue every time i read that story um 
And there's also the kind of the way that he characterizes Grimsby Royalot, who's the the stepfather, is that he's like a giant of a man. He's this huge guy. So he's not just mean and ugly and unkind and cruel, but he's also um, physically intimidating and very scary. Um, and there's this famous moment in the story where he just takes Holmes's because he comes to try to intimidate Holmes into not not coming or to not into not helping Helen, but he bends the poker in, in half, like bends the poker into like a knot. And then and then there's this surprise moment where Holmes is able to straighten it back out again, right? Because he's you know he's never been described as a huge man himself um so he it makes him this like hulking presence um and i think that also feels very gothic um well so let's talk about helen stoner who is the the main female character um as laurie said she is uh, a lone twin now because her twin sister has passed away two years prior um how is she like um the typical gothic heroine or how does she differ from that particular kind of archetype I think she's different in that she she has a sense of agency that the standard gothic heroine never really gets because Helen goes of her own accord. She sneaks away from this murder house and goes to find Doyle on her own. Like she's she's brave. She she knows that something is wrong and she finds the person who will help her. And it's not she's not just like this cowering waif like she's she tried to get the the man she's supposed to marry tried to get him to to believe her and she's like oh fine i know you don't i'm gonna go find someone who'll help me like she she is scared out of her mind she is like absolutely terrified the physical descriptions of her you can almost feel her tension there but she she has this strength of character to figure out how to get safe. And I I really admired that about her. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. She's like you said, she's she's terrified, but she's also like in, in some ways she does seem very rational. She's very like, this is how I feel, but this is how I'm going to solve the problem. And she's able to take directions from Holmes and give him the information that he wants. Um, like she's she's in command of her faculties um, and, and able to um, respond to the situation in a very capable way, um, which I think, yeah, you don't, you don't always see. Um, so maybe, maybe in that sense, she, she is maybe part of the sympathy between Holmes and, and Helen is because she does have some of those, those attributes, um, instead of just being, you know, a, a puddle of tears over the situation. You know, I never thought about it till you guys were just talking about that, but in some ways, maybe her, her twin sister is like, has the typical, maybe the more typical experience of a gothic heroine, right? She's kind of at his mercy, of, of the mercy of a mysterious force, doesn't feel like she has anyone to turn to, and then suffers the terrifying fate, right? And and dies. And so Helen watches all that go down. And it gives her, maybe that gives her this resolve that it's, when you know, that it's not going to happen to her. Because she tells Holmes, you know, I heard the whistle. And, like, she got up and immediately started making her way to London. She realized the story was replaying itself. And she thought, okay, I'm going to make a different ending this time. You know, yeah, she doesn't even wait till morning. She's like, nope, no. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, bye. Okay. <laughs> um, yes. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, and uh, which and so having talked through all of this kind of gothic 
atmosphere we have going on in the story. Um, I wanted to kind of finish this section by just talking a little bit more generally about what, uh, how we feel about the story um, as a whole. So the, the kind of final question for Speckle Band is, what do you like or dislike about this story? And or are there any things that you would like to change about the story? Any ways you think it could be made better? I have two. One is something I would change about all uh, English Victorian literature, and that's the casual racism. So why we got to have gypsies, right? Like what what point does the do the Roma serve here other than uh, a racist red flag? So that's standard. England, you got problems. But uh, I think my biggest problem, and I do really enjoy this piece a lot, but my biggest problem is the speckled band just doesn't make any sense for something somebody would yell out at their the death. I thought the same thing this time when I read it. And the only, it, and I don't remember thinking that before, the only thing I could come up with is that if she couldn't actually see the whole of the snake, maybe she didn't actually realize it was a snake. Because if she realized it was a snake, why would you not just say, it was the snake? It was a snake. Right? I what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Snake! So much easier than the speckled band. That's that's so much energy. You could say, Helen, I love you, but snake! You know, you could, yeah, there are so many true. better things to say at your death. I think that is the weakest point. Uh, Alexis, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that is fair. Um, it's a fair critique. And I'm trying to remember now, despite all of my readings of it how much of this is just in my brain and how much of this is accurate but am i right that like it wraps itself around someone's head or did i just is that my taking okay so like that to me was very like what what snake what venomous snake wraps itself around someone's head and if it is wrapped around your head how do you see it to know that it is speckled i guess she sees it after it leaves well like, it's, um, not her, it's not her so it wraps around his head in the end when the snake holmes hits the snake with the stick and it goes back through the vent after it bites the one that sent it after it bites uh roy lot um it, it then is they find it coiled around his head like happily his okay so <laughs> i think me it. reading it so many times as a kid in my mind it was this is how the snake kills it wraps itself around your head and bites oh, okay. and so then it was like well how in the world is she seeing the speckled band wrapped around her head in the dark i don't know if she's got a mirror so so some of that that same kind of idea of like how does she know that that's what it is why does she call it the speckled band and again that's why i thought band like it's like a band around my head like there was a speckled band around my head or something and that's why she says it that way. Um, but it was always a very like, I don't know of very many snakes that would like wrap around and then bite if they're venomous. It's even if it's a constrictor, it's not wrapping around your head. If it's a constrictor, it's not the venomous. So so yeah, the specifics of the snake. I love the story and I love I love that I can follow along with Holmes's reasoning, even though I have never studied all the different kinds of tobacco and all the different kinds of handwriting and all the different kinds of cigarette ash, um, which is sometimes how he, you know, solves things. This one, he sees the the bell pole that's not connected to anything, the vent, the bed that's nailed down. Like that's a pretty tight. Like I'm with him. I'm like, yeah, something's clearly coming through that vent down the pole, the the bell pole um, to the bed. Uh, so I like that. It, feel, it feels a little bit tighter. Um, and more realistic than some of the other uh, obscure knowledge that that Holmes brings to some of the other mysteries. Um, 
that's actually a really good point that never occurred to me before that, um, you know, if you're the kind of person who likes to solve a mystery before the end of the story, then this is a good one. Um, it doesn't feel like cheating like some uh, some other ones in the history of detective fiction. Um, the two things that I would change, I think, are both related to Helen. And one of them is that. Um, Laurie mentioned before that this is clearly an, an incredibly abusive situation, and I, I would have really liked a little bit more, but maybe this is too much to expect of, of a kind of 19th century um, story written by a man. I would have liked a little bit more psychologizing about why through time she's continued to kind of cover for her abusive stepfather um and i think you could get you there are reasons that could be given but when you read the story in the beginning she's she's presented as you know we talked about before and you know she's independent she seems to have gumption and will and she's trying to avoid you know falling into the same fate but at the same time is also kind of hiding initially from Holmes that he's been physically abusive to her and you know she mentions that he threw like a blacksmith into the creek or something last week and she had to spend all the money she had left to keep you know to cover it up and i'm like why cover it up why not just let the cops come take him away it seems like it would do everyone a service like I, you know so um that that was that's always been a little unsatisfying to me and the only other thing i don't love about this story is that helen's so great and there's and and all the all the helen stuff in the first half of the story is amazing but after uh she leaves after they send her to the other bedroom so that Holmes can deal with whatever's happening and then after the snake she never speaks again you never see i mean you get told that they take her off to be taken care of by her aunt and harrow because this has been such a terrible experience but you never hear anything else from her and that's always been frustrating to me because she's such a great character and um particularly in contrast with scandal and bohemia which we're about to talk about where literally irene adler gets almost the last word in that story um and so it's frustrating to me that you don't see you don't get to hear Helen's reaction to her um having gained her freedom from this man um and you know I just think that's interesting that he kind of just, um, which I mean, maybe that's because it's it's a Sherlock Holmes story. It's not a Helen Stoner story, but still, that was that's the thing I would change. Um, yeah. Any last comments about this story before we move on? Real quick to sort of piggyback on your point about why does she cover up for him? They cover up for him even after he's dead. Like the official inquiry is he was playing with the pet and it was a dangerous pet and oh, yeah. and that's why he died and so there is no justice like and in the sense of public justice for her sister there is no he killed her and granted at this point i mean it's been a couple of years maybe they can't prove it um and there is no he tried to kill helen and i assume that this is largely because she doesn't want the stain you know whatever sort of guilt by association the stain of her family name i mean he obviously has a terrible reputation already uh, at least locally, but that then when you start bringing that in, I assume it's because she doesn't want to have him as a convicted murderer, or maybe it's just that they can't prove it, and then they can't, and it doesn't matter because he's dead. But but even in death, it's an accident that he died, and there's nothing about him having tried to kill twice. Yeah, I think that is the the single the real shortcoming of the story is that uh, the level of abuse there is so traumatic that in order to keep the kind of light surfacey level entertainment that that uh, Doyle has established with his other stories, you kind of have to gloss over it. This The trauma is too real to be in Sherlock's world. That makes sense. I, th I think that that um, I think that's probably a big part of it. Um, and uh, let's go ahead and move on to what to me in many ways is a is a more fun story. <laughs> 
up than than uh, the decidedly gothic speckled band. So we're going to talk through now a scandal in Bohemia, and Alexis is going to give us a summary of that story. All right, I will try to keep this from being too long, but I want to make sure I hit the plot points so that you get the uh, the feel for it. And uh, as Laurie said earlier, you know, spoiler alert. Um, so uh, at the start of this story, which is, as Katie pointed out, is the first of the short stories, uh, Watson is no longer living with Holmes. He has gotten married to Mary Morrison from the sign of the four um, and is practicing medicine again. But he stops by ba Baker Street for the first time since his marriage. And while he's there, Holmes is approached by the king of Bohemia, who has plans to marry a Scandinavian princess, but is concerned about a former lover, uh, a retired opera singer named Irene Adler, who has promised to scuttle his forthcoming marriage using a photograph of the two of them. Uh, the king has tried to buy the photograph from Adler to no avail, and multiple attempts to steal it have proven unsuccessful. They don't know where she's keeping it. Uh, so the question is, will Holmes help him retrieve the photograph and save the impending marriage? Uh, Holmes, in fact, will, or at least will try. So um, when Holmes is actually diving into his investigative efforts, he dresses as a groom and hangs out outside uh, around Adler's house, finds out that she has a regular gentleman caller named Jeffrey Norton, a lawyer. Uh, initially, Holmes does not know if the connection to Norton is personal or professional, but eventually he ends up following them to a nearby church where they uh, are trying to get married, and Holmes himself ends up being a witness to the marriage and having to sign the documents so that they can actually get married. Uh, after the wedding, Adler and Norton go their separate ways, and Holmes heads back to retrieve his faithful Watson. Uh, later that night, Holmes returns to Adler's house, this time dressed as a clergyman, stages an altercation on the street in front of the house, right as she is arriving home. Um, he comes to her aid and then fakes injury, uh, whereupon Adler has him brought into the house. So Holmes is now inside, and then at a signal from Holmes, Watson, who is outside, chucks a smoke bomb in the window and raises the cry of fire, and then that allows Holmes to uh, observe Adler rushing to a secret location in her home where she's hidden the photograph. The idea being when there's a risk of fire, you're going to save the thing that's most precious to you. And Holmes has decided that the thing that Irene Adler is uh, values the most is this photograph. Uh, and it works. Uh, she goes in into a recess behind a sliding panel above a bell pole. So he knows where it is now. Um, but the coachman is watching Holmes too closely for him to retrieve the photograph right then. So Holmes and Watson return to Baker Street. Right outside their door, an unknown passerby greets Holmes by name, and Lynn leaves. Holmes shares the good news that he has found the photograph with the king, but when they arrive at Adler's house the next day, they are informed that Adler has left the country with her new husband. Um, and uh, in the hidden compartment, Holmes finds a letter written to him, Holmes, um, explaining that she had figured out what he had done, how he had exposed her secret and tricked her into showing where the photograph was and had followed him home dressed as a boy. And she was the one who greeted him on his doorstep. Uh, in the compartment is also a photograph of Adler, just Adler this time, uh, in evening dress. She promises in her letter that she will not use the compromising photograph except to protect herself against any possible action by the king. The king, confident of Adler's trustworthiness, is satisfied and offers Holmes an emerald ring as payment, but Holmes declines the ring, requesting instead the photograph of Irene Adler. And thereafter, he always refers to Adler as the woman. Thank you so much. Um, that's awesome. Um, so I actually, um, I, I think I'm going to... Um, 
and sorry to spring spring this on you guys. I think I'm going to take the first question we were going to talk about about the story and I'm going to move it down a little bit further because actually what I think I really want to talk about first is just what is remarkable about Irene Adler? How does she stand out from other women in uh, the other various Holmes stories? Well, she's Holmes. Like she's got Holmes's brain. She can she she beats him. Yeah, and similar skills right of disguise you know she disguises herself um and and we 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 know because she says that this is something that she does often this is not like a one-off um what other what other stuff uh, did you guys notice about her what about you alexis well i mean according to the king she has the face of the most beautiful of women and the mind of the most resolute of men so there's that <laughs> Kind of a backhanded compliment. <laughs> well, like, and yeah, the king. Most the women king, aren't resolute. Yeah, well, and that and that's it. So, so if you think about sort of some of the stereotypical um, portrayals based on gender, you might have more of a, a wavering or inconsistent female, and she is very resolute. Uh, and then also you might have uh, maybe a woman who is less trustworthy, whereas the king is very confident. Like he's like this. This photograph is as safe as it as if it had been burned. Um, if she says she won't expo expose me, so um, that she is a woman of her word and trustworthy and able to follow through with what she says she will do. Um, so now he he does not appreciate that as much as Holmes does. Holmes appreciates it more and even makes a like a takes a dig at the king when the king's like, oh, I wish she was on my level. And Holmes is like, yeah, just, you're not on the same level with her, but the other way around. Um, and so um, Holmes appreciates her more than than the king does. Yeah, uh, this this story we see set up the ability of Holmes to to respond emotionally to Helen Stoner. It's like the very end of Scandal and Bohemia. The, he used to make merry over the cleverness of women, but I have not heard him do it of late. There is a sea change in Sherlock Holmes that Irene Adler makes him less of a jerk to women moving forward in life, and thus is Helen Stoner saved. You know, that's a good point. Um, and, and, one, and one of the other stories, and I'm not going to pretend I can remember which one is because I can't, but um, and in one of the other stories, Watson makes the comment that um, he never really had a ton of, he, he didn't really have that much respect for women, but he was always very kind and gentle to them when he was talking to them. But the interesting thing about this story is that I think this story appears to depict the moment when he meets the first woman that he has real intellectual respect for. And you're right, Laurie, it seems to be a moment of change for him. Um, I think it's interesting that even that even this is the first story that's published, that it's he's he's telling it, in some ways it's it's a leap forward into the future because some of the later stories you know Watson's telling stories that happened further back in the past. It's just kind of interesting um, to think about the timelines. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the story, and I don't know what about Irene Adler, and I don't know what it, I can't decide what I think it says about her, um, or if it says something about the king. So the king calls her an adventuress. Which, you know, reading that in the 20, uh, reading that in the 21st century, it makes it sound like maybe she's like Indiana Jones or something, but a woman. But that's not actually, apparently that's not what that means. I, I've been informed by my husband today because I didn't know this before, that adventurous has a very specific meaning in this particular time period, which is that she is a woman who is always on the lookout for um, wealthy men who she can, uh, you know, become their significant other and, you know, live off the spoils or whatever. Um, but the king's the only person we see refer to her in those terms. And I think that's interesting because in Holmes's file, she's in Holmes's file and there's no mention of that. 
in Holmes's file, which is usually pretty exhaustive about a person and usually has lots of, you know, all that's said in Holmes's file is that she's a retired opera singer, where she was born, America. That's another point to make about her is that she's American. Um, and, you know, what she's currently doing, there's no mention of this adventurous. And if you think she, if, if you think about it, if she was notorious, if everyone knew that she was this notorious adventurous lady, always looking for rich men, you'd think that would be in Holmes's file. So I wonder if that's not the king giving you his own personal dig or his own, you know, he's kind of taking a dig at her or his own personal opinion about what she is, what she's like. It's just kind of interesting. Um, well, well, the king is being uh, blackmailed with revenge porn, so I think we can allow him a certain amount of uh, emotional response in the situation. Yes, though we also don't know what he did to her. That's that's the other thing that's interesting about the story is that she says at the end that he's a man who has cruelly wronged her, and we don't know what that means. I, to me, the story seems to imply mostly that he just never had any intention of being serious with her, but she thought that he did, and then he just threw her over because she's not on his level, right, like that. Um, I think, uh, I think that, that it's an interesting thing. I'm just going to, I just, I wrote down my observations about her. So one, I like that she lives on Serpentine Avenue. I think that's on purpose because she's crafty. Um, she's described as a lovely woman with a face that a man might die for, which I think is interesting, particularly when you contrast that with the fact that apparently she dresses in male clothing a lot and nobody notices that she's, um, that she's dressed as a man. Um, I also, um, I also think that, let me find it. Where is it down here? I made another note. Um, I can't remember now. Um, but she seems to, she, she seems to have mainly made this huge impression on the King for what Alexis mentioned, which is that she has this resolution or this, um, this firmness of purpose that once she decides to do something, she's going to do it and you're not going to turn her aside. And I think in the story is written, that's enough to, you know, to have, have caught his attention or to and, and to impress Holmes. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me about the Jeremy Brett adaptation is that in that one, she's shown you get these flashbacks of the past and she's shown doing things like hunting with the king and riding horses like a stride or something or like she's shown doing kind of like man things um, with him, I guess, to kind of to try to add to, the, you know, the kind of um, general impression of a woman who is adventuresome or whatever. And I, I thought it was so funny because David didn't remember that that's not in the story. When I was talking about it with him, he was like, well, didn't she, isn't she riding and shooting? And I was, and I said, no, not in the story. She's not. And so it's interesting in the story, her main kind of masculine trait that the King ascribes to her is, is purely this, you know, firmness of mind, this firmness of purpose, which is interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, the kind of, and I'm gonna. I'm not gonna call it a relationship because it's not the interaction between Holmes and Irene Adler. Because he does. He calls her the woman. Um, so in the second line of this story, Watson says that Sherlock Holmes and Irene Adler that their interaction or relationship or whatever you want to call it was definitely not romantic. So why do you think that people in adaptations or whatever always seem to want to make it either romantic or sexual or both? Why do we think they feel the need? I mean, she's the only woman who could be called his peer, really effectively, like who who seems like um, on on the same level he is, not necessarily hierarchically, but just sort of on the same wavelength that he is in some ways. Um, and so if you want 
your leading man to have a leading lady, which I think is a common desire that, that people have. Um, well, that's it's kind of her or nobody. Um, and then uh, also at the end, the fact that he prices her picture um, above an emerald ring, um, it, you know, it, it can just as easily be from we have in the text. It's the picture of a person he respects and who, in this particular case, bested him. But because it's a picture of her in evening dress, I think people can latch on to the like he's in love with her or, you know, and she's so beautiful. And if you have a picture of a hot chick in a pretty dress, people might jump to conclusions about why you have it. Um, so, I mean, I think there's there's reasons in the story that that make sense. Um and people want Holmes to have that side of his character developed, which is not part of the the text. Yeah, people just want to see pretty people kiss. And um, you usually see pretty people get cast as leads in filmic adaptations of stuff. So I could absolutely understand why people would want to see two pretty people actors who are playing two very smart people have a romantic relationship on screen. That makes sense. And I, I think because Holmes is in many ways and almost always so static throughout the entire canon, anything that hints at a kind of development of um, more depth of personality or of relationship, people want to like cling on to, you know. Um, which, and I should say that those Guy Ritchie movies with Robert Downey Jr. They he he goes hard after the adventurous thing. He takes that really seriously. Like that one line that King says about that, that becomes her whole, you know, her whole deal. And then you know, kind of also runs with this weird kind of relationship um, thing. I think that um, something else too is because Holmes is so remote in so many ways because and, and I should say I shouldn't be unfair it's not just romantic attachments I think that you see played up I also think that modern adaptations in particular seem to really 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 want to make e deepen further the friendship between Watson and Holmes and make it something that um is a lot deeper and a lot more um I guess fleshed out than on the page too, though. So, I mean, it's not just a, I think it's not just a romance thing. I just, I think people want Sherlock Holmes to have more depth to him. It's like they want to, they want Sherlock Holmes to be Lord Peter Wimsey or something, right? They want there to be growth and change and, you know, these huge depths of, uh, of kind of personal, um, I don't know what the word is, personal. Well, he's a mind, right? Like, Sherlock yeah. Holmes is a mind like he is a mind the story is about a mind and we want him to be a mind and also a heart and we want to and so we were casting about for for ways to make him seem more human and part of the point is that he is atypical <laughs> in all of these ways and has so much mind that of course it, it makes sense that there would be and of course it's fictional but like that that that's what he is he is a mind in the books that's really there's glimmers of something more but but everything else is I think us just trying to project onto him um, our own vision of what, what a character should look like. So, um, we mentioned briefly before that she, she tracks Sherlock Holmes by dressing in male clothing. She's the mysterious voice that says hello to him outside his house. Um, and her letter at the end says that this is something she does often. So what did you guys think about the contrast between that and the fact that multiple times in the story, she's described as stunningly beautiful. What, what are the, what does that contrast do to her character, or to the story? I think it's a couple of things. One, she's probably coming off as like a really young man, like a like a boy, like a teenager, in that um, kind of 
the sylvan ideal of a beautiful youth kind of thing that people just glance over. But also it suggests she's really good at costumes, yo. Yeah, I think she's described, I think he says that the voice he hears, he looks and it's a youth in an Ulster. <laughs> I think that's how he describes her. Um, I, I, I like that contrast because it, it, you, it gives you a little bit of, um, it complicates her a little bit, right? Because she's been described multiple times as beautiful. A king says that she, you know, she is one of the most beautiful women women that he's ever seen and so i think in some ways it keeps you from from it keeps you focused on her cleverness the fact that she frequently is is you know cross-dressing and is using this to not just to fool sherlock holmes but also to gain more freedom she says it's a, she likes the freedom it's affordable right. that's interesting right it complicates her and makes her not just a, a beautiful woman who is able to use her beauty to go places in life and but she also is using her talents and also she is finding ways to escape the strict of being a beautiful woman by dressing like a man you know right the freedom could be from like just the male versus female freedom of the, the she can go different places she can move in a more unrestricted way but then also specifically like you said the freedom from being not just a woman but a beautiful woman where she's going to be attracting notice and attention and there's going to be a very specific experience that she has whereas it seems like you know male dress brings with it anonymity uh, in a way that she's not able to to have when she's dressed as herself Absolutely. Um, well, let me um, let me move on to our next little item, um, and which and that this is where I want to bring in the question um, that I said I was going to ask at the beginning, but I wanted to move to the end. And I think that um, it's maybe one of the most interesting things, and it's something that never occurred to me until I was prepping for this podcast. So this was Doyle's very first Sherlock Holmes short story that was published, and in this story, he gets beaten by a woman. Um, now, I realize that readers would have already been introduced to Holmes in the novels that came before. So this is not the first time readers are meeting Sherlock Holmes, but this is the first short story. So it's an early text and he gets beaten by a woman. What do you make of that? Or does it and, and or does it affect how we read the rest of the Holmes canon? I think it's uh, so I think it's kind of interesting, but I think there's in this short story, I was noticing some ways that Doyle goes out of his way to align Holmes as a character with a kind of feminine other um there's like we meet we meet we meet him we he is not he is not allowed to have his own interiority much like most of literature won't let women at this time but then we have this weird phrase um from Watson to Holmes uh, on the second on the second page my dear Holmes said I this is too much you would certainly have been burned had you lived a few centuries ago like Holmes is a witch a female witch in in this moment and so this power this feminine power that Irene Adler has is also something that specifically been granted now to Holmes so I think it's really interesting that it's almost a a meeting <clears throat> a meeting of minds and like a, a a meeting of equals and it's because of this subtle othered femininity that Holmes has that allows him to recognize Irene's game and be like mad props to her on that which did you see that um Holmes is like the classic archetypal kind of rationalist detective, but 
you see the the aspect that he has, which is that he notices every detail and later kind of in later kind of cozies or other kinds of you know mystery writing, you see that turned to being made a, a particular aspect of the feminine, right? So that you have somebody like Miss Marple or you know um, later kind of some female detectives who their 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 whole strength is that they notice every detail, but the, because they're women, they have a different breadth of knowledge, right? And so they understand things that a man might understand. So they're you know it's like a female Sherlock Holmes situation. Um, whereas I guess Holmes is kind of depicted as someone who knows something about everything, <laughs> you know. Like maybe presumably he has some some knowledge of female things too. But Laurie, I noticed that witch line when I reread it this time, and I never noticed that before, and it, and it blew my mind too. Well, I think it's interesting too that that in some ways Holmes is is somewhat devoid of of ego in the sense of he doesn't he doesn't necessarily get mad at being bested just because he got bested. Like there's a game recognizes game kind of vibe going on where he is thrilled to have like and even it's in sometimes in the way that he deals with with Moriarty right where he seems to be actually enjoying having someone to go up against who is uh, closer to being on his level um and so and in this case particularly where where his he is not the only one interested in the cause of justice so her winning such as it is is not a a a perversion of justice and ultimately even though he is bested like the king gets what he wants the king wants the photograph not to be made public so he can get married so it's this weird thing where like she she keeps Holmes from getting the photograph but the end towards which the king was was desirous of, of, of moving it still happens so um, I think it's a little bit that's a little bit interesting as well uh, so both the idea that he is is sort of happy to recognize and applaud someone else's competence um and the that her victory it is and isn't a victory because it, it, he doesn't necessarily lose even though he doesn't end up with the photograph yes i think if, i mean if there's a loser in this story even though he's not you're right to me the, the one who comes across as kind of a loser in the story is actually the king even though he gets what he wants in the end but the way he's written he comes off as just such a buffoon um, which in the the jeremy brett adaptation plays that up the way that guy is cast and the way he comports himself is so ridiculous <laughs> that um, it, to some degree, um, and even reading the story sometimes I, I have to, I find myself wondering, because Irene Adler is so amazing the way she's written and she's so impressive and independent and she has, she's so clever that you, I always find myself wondering what, what she ever saw in The King anyway. Right. But this is supposed to have been a relationship that happened five years prior. So maybe now Irene Adler is who she is. Maybe she was a different person five years ago. Um, I also find it fascinating that she's presented as this person who's so, so amazingly clever, so sophisticated. And, and now in this moment in time is completely in love with Godfrey Norton, the lawyer, and we get nothing about him. Right. Doyle doesn't feel the need to tell us that. So we don't know. I mean, he, clearly he's got to be a pretty re remarkable person because she's decided that that she loves him. But all we know about him is that they are apparently completely honest with each other, which is kind of amazing because he knows the whole story. Right. And that he um, and that he's in it with her to the end. Like, I mean, you know, he's willing to get married on the spur of a moment, flee in the middle of the night to the continent. Um, so he seemed, he's a fascinating person. I would be interested, you know, if I, I, I'd like to see a fuller picture of him, right? If I could ask Doyle from Beyond the Grave, um, which he might appreciate having been a spiritualist. Um, I would like to ask more about Godfrey Norton. I always found him, you know, interesting. Um, well, go ahead. I was going to say, and he's also a sort of evidence against the king's accusation that she's an adventuress, because at this time, lawyers are not, like, it's a good living, but it's not king of Bohemia money. So um, she clearly is not, you know, found a new, you know, source of income that, that is uh, on that level. That's a great point. 
um, that I hadn't occurred to me before. Um, well, and and also kind of maybe those two things taken together also shows you um, maybe the degree to which the king's impressions of her um, are are dated by when they had their relationship. You know, he's he's describing her as he you know remembers her, um, and I guess how he you know from what he can tell based on the fact that she's refusing to give back this letter and has been able to evade every attempt. Um, which he just tosses off that twice she's been waylaid. That sounds really scary. <laughs> it sounds like there have been two attempts at armed robbery and she just didn't have it on her or something like that. Um, she's clearly a person with nerves of steel. Um, okay, so um, I think we probably should move on to passing on. Um, do you guys have any other comments about this story before we move forward? I have a quick comment based on what you just said. I'm assuming since since Irene Adler says that he he cruelly used her, it's very convenient for him because if if she was an adventuress, then he is excused for sort of making use of her services, such as as he understood them, and then casting her aside because she was just an adventuress. So he has a, he has a self interested reason to cast her in that light because it then makes him not um, look as bad if he in fact had this relationship and then tossed her aside. Um, so I was just thinking that, that that might be relevant there. The other thing is, I think in our show notes, maybe we can include um, uh, other Sherlock Holmes, uh, female characters from Sherlock Holmes or stories that relate to women that are um, recommendations sort of separate from passing on or possible f- topics for future discussion. So I know we don't have time to talk about them tonight, but um, maybe just to include that in our show notes. Thank you for reminding me of that, Alexis, because I'd forgotten to mention that. And because it's it's true, there are at least two or three other stories, including the novels that I can think of, that are that have the same situation as in Speckle Band, for instance, where you have a young woman who's being kept from her inheritance um, for some reason, um, just like in Speckle Band. So you do see a couple of different stories like that. So yeah, we'll we'll definitely have, throw some links into the show notes for that. Um, Laurie, any final comments? I would just like to say that uh, Una Stubbs' Mrs. Hudson is the best Mrs. Hudson. That's that's my final comment. All right. Um, the only other final comment I had on the story is just to say that I think my favorite part of the whole story is the end of the story, um, near the end of the story, when the king finds out that she's gotten married and is kind of put out about it. Like he's been trying to extricate himself from this woman entirely for however long. But when he finds out that she's married somebody else, he's put out because he thought that she only loved him. (laughs) So ridiculous. Um, Well, let's move on to passing on, which is where we give our recommendations for other things that you might want to check out. Let's start with Laurie. Um, I am going to suggest my absolute favorite filmed adaptation of of the Sherlock Holmes and that would be Elementary, starring Johnny Lee Miller as Sherlock Holmes and Lucy Liu as Jane Watson. Uh, it's the best and also regularly features Holmes waking Watson up in the most obnoxious ways possible. And also a really amazing tortoise. Little turtle. So great. His name's Clyde. Everyone should watch Elementary. Thanks. I heard about it when it first came on, but I had never taken the time to watch it. Is it streaming anywhere, Lori? Uh, I would imagine so, but I I don't. I'm such a Luddite, so I watched it when it was on the actual air. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll have to go looking for it um, when I reach the end of uh, whatever series I'm currently binging. How about you, Alexis? What are you recommending tonight? I am recommending a series of mysteries uh, called the Nero Wolf Mysteries by Rex Stout. 
Um, it also features a brilliant detective and his assistant, and the uh, the stories are narrated by the assistant. In fact, there's even a fan theory that Nero Wolf is actually the son of Sherlock Holmes by Irene Adler. So um, there, there's actually some. I never knew that. Yeah, yeah. There's there's people who have um, that theory because his uh, his origins are somewhat shrouded in mystery. Um, it's like if Sherlock Holmes were hugely fat and uh, a genius obsessed with food and orchids, and if Watson were a super snarky young bachelor, charming man about town. Um, the the character interactions are really what you're there for. They sometimes can eclipse the mysteries, but the mysteries are still there's they're funny, smart, and delightful books. Um, but there's like 50 of them, so I'll I'll give you two titles <laughs> to start with potentially both of which have more prominent female characters because in general um, Nero Wolf and his assistant can have some of the same uh, dismissive attitude towards women that we sometimes see in, in Holmes. Uh, one is called Death of a Doxy um, which has a female character that the, the main detective interacts with more and that's a, more of an urban setting and then another one is Some Buried Caesar where the assistant sort of meets his match in a female character and that has a rural setting so they're sort of fish out of water um, out in the country uh, for that one. So uh, highly recommend the books in general. There have been some adaptations. Um, A&E did one uh, several years ago um, starring Timothy Hutton, but um, they're great. They're fun. It's it's very much, there's a lot of connective tissue between them and, and the Sherlock Holmes stories. Thanks, Alexis. I love I love the Neurowolf books. I reread one a couple of weeks ago, and I can't remember the title, but it's the one where they're taking on the FBI in like the the 50s or yes. the 60s um uh-huh. and I, uh, that's the, the doorbell rang i believe yes um and absolutely loved it um and that a e series was good i i enjoyed it too um i actually said to um this is a side note but I, I think it's true i said to david yesterday i was thinking about if you could ever conceivably have a mystery story series where your um your detective was like a stay-at-home mom and had little kids and i told david i said the only way it could work is if she was like near a wolf and never left her house really and then she had like an archie like a, a person who was the person who was doing all the running around for her so she's like the brain because <laughs> that's the only way it would ever work because you can't you know just run off and detect things all the time when you have little kids at home um so my recommendation is for a uh is also for a mystery series. Um, it's not Holmes-based, but um, it's one I've, I've enjoyed in the recent past. So tonight I'm recommending Shakespeare and Hathaway, Private Investigators, which combines two of my favorite things, which is Shakespeare and also murder mysteries. So um, this series is obviously out of the UK. Um, and it is, we would call it a cozy um, because it is, you know, it's not too intense. Um, nobody's carrying a weapon who is a good guy. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's mild, mild fun, um, starring, uh, Luella Shakespeare, um, that's, sorry, that's not starring because that's not the actress's name. Main characters are Luella Shakespeare, former hairdresser, turned private investigator, um, and she's working with Frank Hathaway, who is, uh, a retired police detective. So it's a situation where you actually do have a person who used to be the police, you know, usually in private detectives clash with the police. He used to be the police. Now he's not anymore, but still has connections in the force. And all of the mysteries in this series are happening in, um, are happening in, oh gosh, I could, my, my brain is gone tonight, guys. Um, 
Stratford. Oh my gosh. All the stories are happening in Stratford-upon-Avon. Many of the episodes are adaptations of Shakespeare's stories from the plays. Um, tons, and, and even if when it's not directly um, tied to a plot, there are names all over the place. Um, they're, one of, they're a little assistant guy who's a young actor guy who went to uh, RADA. His name is Sebastian. He has a BFF who's Viola and she works on the local police force. Um, and so there are about 85 Shakespeare kind of um, Easter eggs in every episode. So um, if you like kind of mild murder mystery fun and and or if you like Shakespeare, um, you should check out Shakespeare and Hathaway Private Investigators. Um, we watch it on BritBox, which is a, a streaming service that we subscribe to through Amazon. I'm not sure if it's one of the series, British series that's been put on PBS. I don't I don't think that it has. It um, has. It has. Really? My mom okay. watches it. Good. Um, yeah, it's a great time. Apparently it comes on during the day in the UK, which I love. It's like, I guess like the Matlock, you know, like when I was a kid, we would watch Matlock at home. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so that tells you, you know, listeners, if you want some calm fun, give Shakespeare and Hathaway private investigators a check out. I think it's a lot of fun. And I think, and it, I enjoy it too, because it is a series in which you have single male and female partnered detectives and as far as i've been able to watch in this series there has as yet been no romantic complications between them they are friends who are solving crimes together and it's kind of amazing because like we said before with you know irene adler there's always that kind of temptation or that desire to try to make things romantic so um that's my recommendation for tonight um, well, listeners, thank you so much for walking through some Sherlock Holmes fun with us tonight. Um, we always love to hear from you. So um, if you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, um, or if you just want to connect with us, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page uh, or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. We don't have our own Twitter handle, but you can reach us through that Twitter handle. You can check out show notes from this episode and all of our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. You can also listen to all of our episodes through that same website. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Uh, for Laurie Norris and Alexis Neal, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the series Mythic Quest. Until then, in Essentials Unity and Non-Essentials Liberty and in all things love. <laughs>